with you this morning. I'd like for you to turn with me into Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 to a passage that is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. And while you're locating Matthew chapter 5, I just want to bring those of you who are new to City Church uh, up to speed. We started a new series last week called Stranger Things. Uh, Life in the Right Side Up. And I got the idea from watching the hit Netflix show Stranger Things. Some of you might even recognize the uh, the stage back here is sort of set to reflect that. Got the idea from that show. It imagines, uh, the Stranger Things shows, imagines that scientists have discovered a portal into an alternate dimension to our own world, and that portal is called the Upside Down. Uh, except that everything there in the Upside Down, you know, everything in this world is there, except that everything in the Upside Down is desolate, shadowy, grim, and frightening because it's ruled by a terrible monster called the Demogorgon. Well, what struck me about the show is that in some ways, it sounds similar to a central theme that runs through the Bible. That in the present reality in which we live, there are two alternate kingdoms that coexist side by side right now here on earth. One is the kingdom of God. Now, I'm referring to that in this series as the right side up. One is the kingdom of man which I'm referring to as the upside down. And in the kingdom of man, life is the exact opposite of what God intended life to be. For instance, let me just read you a review of some of the stories in the news from this past week. Here's one. A journalist critical of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia is believed to have been killed inside the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul his body dismembered inside the consulate for disposal. Here's another one from our world this past week. A massive caravan of Honduran migrants desperate for work broke through a steel fence at the Guatemalan-Mexican border. Mexican police in riot gear set off tear gas canisters and pushed them back. Here's another one from the world that we live in. The 29 best Kardashian birthday cakes of all time. Here's another one. A Wisconsin teenage girl is missing and believed to be in danger after her parents were found shot dead in their home. Meghan Markle poised to make pasta jewelry a trend. Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie continue their contentious custody battle over their six children. China is launching a fake moon into the sky. Folks, this is what an upside-down world really looks like. It's the opposite of God's design for the world. It's a toxic mixture of the murderous, the ludicrous, the sad, the trivial, the strife-filled and contentious, and the broken and the absurd. And yet, this is the world that so many people speak of admirably, proudly, when they say that they live in the real world. This is the real world, the one that I just read to you a moment ago. In the Netflix show... People know when they're in the upside down. They don't like it. They want out of it. They actively seek a way out of it. But in the present reality in which we live, people actually think that this upside down world is the right side up. And in his terrific book, The Divine uh, Conspiracy, the late philosopher and Christian Dallas Willard comically highlighted the upside downness of the world in which we live. Some of you have heard me refer to this before, but I think it bears repeating. He wrote this, he said, Think of a world in which little children sing, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. That is what I really want to be. For if I were an Oscar Mayer wiener, 
everyone would be in love with me. How many of you recognize that old uh, song from that commercial? Some of the older folks in the room do. Those of us who are younger may not remember it. (laughs) Willard goes on, think of what it would mean to be a weenie or for someone to love you as they love a hot dog. Think of a world in which adults would pay millions of dollars to have children perform this song in commercials and in which hundreds of millions, even billions of adults find no problem in it. You are thinking of our world. If you are willing to be a weenie to be loved, what else would you be willing to do to be loved? Is it any wonder that depression and other mental and emotional dysfunctions are epidemic? This is what it looks like to live in an upside-down world. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus extends an invitation to us. He says it's possible to leave the upside-downness of life and to live in the kingdom of God to right here on earth, to live right-side-up in an upside-down world. And he gives us a vision of what a right-side-up world looks like. Now, the whole sermon goes through chapter 7. We're going to cover all of that in this series. But I want to go back this morning again to the passage that we looked at last week. And I want to read the introduction again because there's a few more things that I want to say about it. We'll review what we talked about last week. But let's read the passage first from verse 3 of chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are, are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven for the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, just a quick review uh, from last week. We said last week that Jesus isn't using the word blessed in the kind of meaningless Christian cliche way that we often use that particular word. The word bless, we saw, is an important word in the Bible because it takes us back to the promise that God made to a man by the name of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And the promise was that he wouldn't let the world rot and destroy uh, itself under the curse of sin. Instead, God said that he would bless the world through Abraham's descendants. And by bless, he meant he would send a Messiah who would turn the world right side up again through radical transformation of people's lives. That's what he meant by bless. He He would send a Messiah who would turn the world right side up again through radical transformation of people's lives. And the first chapter of the book of Matthew actually establishes that Jesus is indeed a descendant of Abraham. And so by using this word, blessed, and he repeats it nine times, Jesus is saying 
in this introduction to the sermon, he's saying, I am that Messiah. I am the blessing that was promised to Abraham. I am the one who has come to turn the world right side up again. And so this word conveys the point of the whole sermon. The point of the whole sermon is that it is possible to live right side up in an upside down world by becoming a disciple of Jesus. Any other way you choose to live, you will continue to live upside down. But it is possible to live right side up in an upside down world by becoming a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is the blessing through whom you can be blessed by becoming his disciple. That's the overall message of the sermon. Now, I want to look at this passage just a little more closely before we move on. And I'm just going to warn some of you who are very familiar with this passage that your familiarity with this passage is likely going to create an obstacle this morning uh, to understanding what Jesus is really saying in this passage. Because here is what Jesus is teaching in these verses. Simply this. That the kingdom of God is open to all. The kingdom of all, the kingdom of God is open to all. Life in the right side up is open to anyone and everyone. No one has to live in the upside down anymore. It's open and available. Anyone that wants to become a disciple of Jesus can do so. That's the message. Now, that's a very different message from the one that many of you have been taught before, the way that many of you understand this passage. Because many of you have come to understand this passage as an admirable list of Christian virtues. In other words, the way that you understand this passage is that Jesus is saying that these people are blessed because they are these things. But if you were to think about it for just a moment... That would be a contrast to what Jesus and the rest of the New Testament teaches about the gospel, that it is a gospel of grace, not merit. If Jesus is saying that these people are blessed because they are poor in spirit, because they mourn, if they're blessed because they are meek, then these traits become meritorious. In other words, they would be descriptions of the requirements for entrance into the kingdom of God. And if that's what Jesus is teaching It is inconsistent with everything else in the Bible. And if that's what Jesus is teaching, you better become these things. But the good news is that's not what he's teaching at all. To understand what he's saying here, you have to understand that the common assumption of the time, as in many times since, was that the prosperity of the rich indicated God's special favor. That was the Sort of the common assumption of the day. If you were rich, you were rich because God blessed you because he approved of you. You were holy in some way. You were a better person than anyone else. If if you were common or poor or sick, you, you were so because you were cursed by God because of your behavior in some way. And it was it was the religious establishment, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the most religious people in Israel who propagated that idea. But if you think back to something that we said last week in, in chapter 4, just before Jesus begins to preach this sermon, you can look back in your Bible if you want. What was he doing? What kind of people was he around? Well, he was with the sick. 
and the demon-possessed. And he was healing them. And he was casting out demons. The people who he was around were the very people who were believed to be cursed by God. And as he did these miracles, word began to spread about him and big crowds began to follow him. And guess who those big crowds were made up of? They were made up of the the very people who the religious establishment said were hopeless. And to be sure, listen, without Christ they were hopeless, but it wasn't their social status or their economic status or their physical condition that made them hopeless. The German pastor uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once made the observation that Christianity preaches the unending worth of the apparently worthless and the unending worthlessness of what is apparently so valuable. Bonhoeffer is correct, of course. In fact, from the earliest pages of Scripture, God signaled that his kingdom would be socially subversive. Over and over again, God chose to work through people that the rest of the society despised, people that were considered unimportant, who, people, who other people said were nobodies, and, and therefore they were neglected. He worked through the second son instead of the oldest son, the unlovely woman instead of the lovely woman, the barren woman, the immigrant. In other words, he worked through all of the wrong people. And so in these verses, Jesus is simply stating in words what the Old Testament illustrated. He's giving a blanket invitation to anyone and to everyone to leave the upside-down world and to enter the right-side-up world by becoming his disciple. Uh, this, his disciple. And he, he starts this monumentally important sermon by completely obliterating social and cultural distinctions as a basis for life in the kingdom of God. Just imagine how shocking this message would have been to these people who have been told all of their lives that they are hopeless. They are written off. That they've been cursed by God. The socially marginalized. Jesus says, come and be my disciple. Let me introduce you into a world in which social and cultural distinctions mean nothing. And then he begins to describe these people. These are all the people who are around him. These are the crowds that were following him, the people that he'd been the sick and the, and the demon-possessed, and the people for whom he had done these miracles. All of these people who everyone else would said were cursed. And he begins to describe these people. The poor in spirit, he says. A lot of people... Uh, <laughs> And I think this is because of our own legalistic nature. A lot of people look to find a reason here in these verses to justify themselves. And so they take this to mean, uh, they take this phrase, poor in spirit, to mean humble minded. But that's not what it means at all. It means to be spiritually destitute. So please understand, Jesus is not saying, what a fine thing it is to be destitute of every spiritual attainment or quality. That is what makes people worthy of the kingdom. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that people who everyone else would write off spiritually are invited to become his disciple and to learn how to live right side up in an upside down world. The people who religious people would declare hopeless, the sex worker, the gay man, the convicted felon behind bars. Jesus invites them into the kingdom of God. Imagine how this would have hit people. 
Imagine how it would have hit the people that Jesus describes as those who mourn, like a, a woman whose husband had cast her off for someone else. Or for a couple whose son had a debilitating handicap and they thought themselves cursed by God. Imagine how it would have sounded to them to hear Jesus say, I want you, come be my disciple. Imagine how it would have sounded to the meek, uh, shy, intimidated people. People who have trouble speaking up for themselves. Not the kind of people. They're not the kind of people who easily stand up for themselves, so they often get run over by the more forceful. Jesus says, I want you. Come, be my disciple. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus really isn't using the word here in the way that you know, Paul uses it later in the New Testament. These are people who have suffered some kind of terrible injustice and who long to see it be made right. Like the mother whose child was killed by a drunk driver, but the drunk driver was only slapped on the hand by the legal system. Jesus says, come, be my disciple. One day you will see real justice. The merciful. You know, the merciful. These are the people who are constantly being taken advantage of. They have trouble putting boundaries around their lives. People who struggle with addictions often take advantage of the merciful. Jesus says, I want you, come and, come and be my disciple. The pure in heart, these are the perfectionists who constantly fail. At least they feel like they have constantly failed and that they never get it just right. And they're, they're, like, they're the people who are always hard on everybody else. And you know who they are, maybe you live with one. But for however hard they are on other people, they're much harder on themselves. And they just feel like that they never measure up. And Jesus says, I want you. Come be my disciple. Peacemakers. Peacemakers. People who always find themselves in the middle. You know, like warring factions of the family, you know, and neither side really trusts this person (laughs) in the middle. Jesus says, I want you. Come be my disciple. The persecuted. These are the whistleblowers who lose their job because they won't just go along with something that everyone else is doing, but it's wrong. Jesus says, I want you. Come be my disciple. Then the insulted and the lied about because they choose to be a disciple of Jesus. These are the people who Hollywood and the intellectual elite all lump into one big Westboro Baptist church bunch. And they are considered too dumb to realize that they've been duped into believing in a crucified and resurrected Messiah. To these kinds of people who are written off by the best and the brightest, Jesus is saying in verse 14, you are the light of the world. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. In other words, if you come and follow me, if you become my disciple, I will turn your world right side up. And I will even use you, as opposed to the elite of society, to show the rest of the world what it looks like to live right side up. Imagine how this would have sounded to these people who've been written off and shut out from God. Now, two cautions here. The first, as I said, I don't want you to read these descriptions of people here as prescriptions. So Jesus isn't prescribing anything here. 
These aren't spiritual giants that he's describing. He's not saying, go be this. Not, he's not saying, go be poor in spirit. Go be meek. He's not saying that. These aren't, these aren't prescriptions. All he's doing is he's describing people. He's simply saying the kingdom of God, life in the right side up, is open to everyone, regardless of social or economic or cultural distinctions. Okay? That's caution number one. Caution number two. On the other hand, don't read into this that Jesus hates rich people or successful people or powerful people or beautiful people. That's not what he's saying here either. He is simply saying that the invitation into the kingdom of God isn't about such distinctions. The kingdom of God is open to anyone and to everyone who would come and who would follow him. That's what he's saying here in this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Which makes the subject of verses 17 to 20 make perfect sense. Let's read them. Do not think, Jesus says to these people, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore... Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now write this down somewhere, okay? Or make a note of it somewhere. What Jesus is saying here is that though it is never the source of righteousness... The law is always the course of righteousness. So though it's never the source of righteousness, it is always the course of righteousness. And let me just explain what I mean here. Uh, You heard me say earlier, and we said it last week, that God promised that he would not let the earth rot and destroy itself under the curse of sin. And so he chooses a man by the name of Abraham, we said, and he promised to Abraham that he would send a Messiah who would be one of Abraham's family who would turn the world right side up. Well, Abraham's descendants became the nation of Israel. And God chooses Israel to be his people. And the law that Jesus is talking about here is the law that God gave Israel through Moses. And um, it was a law that regulated their lives, told them what was right, what was moral, what was good. Told them what to do in case they didn't, in, in case someone didn't obey the law. It was very unique from the laws and the ways of life of the surrounding nations. In fact, the Old Testament writers who talk about the law, they, I mean, they would praise the law. They would write about its beauty and its uniqueness, and they saw how God's vision of life in the law was so different from any from the way that any other culture around them lived. And they understood that if they obeyed it, it would allow them to flourish. As people, the spirit of Israel's law was love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That summarized it. And if they followed it, this is what life in the right side up would look like. Like like if they followed it, no journalist's body would ever be dismembered in a government building and taken out in pieces to be destroyed. And like if they followed it, husbands wouldn't have mistresses. 
and immigrants from surrounding nations who saw how beautiful life was in Israel wouldn't be met with tear gas and turned away at their borders, but they would be welcomed. Children wouldn't go missing. Men wouldn't sexually harass women or devalue them in any way. Rich people wouldn't be celebrated for their fabulous birthday cakes while poor people starved because the rich and the powerful would serve the poor and the weak instead of taking advantage of them and treating them unjustly. And no one would need, no one would need to become a wiener to be loved because people would love one another. It was a beautiful law. Eternal life in an upside-down world, it turned it, it turned it right side up. The problem with the law was that it was so perfect that the people of Israel could never live up to it because they, like us, were, were sinners. And this is what I mean by the phrase that the law is never the source of righteousness. See, it had no power in it. It couldn't change imperfect people into people who could obey it. It only could show them what life in a, in a right-side world should look like. And it only showed them that they failed. That's all I could do. And God knew this, of course. He knew they couldn't obey, and so he included in, in the law these civil laws, you know, as I said, what to do when someone broke the law. But there were also ceremonial laws about all sorts of sacrifices and celebrations that they were to have. And all of these pointed to the promise of this coming Messiah, the descendant of Abraham, who would pay for the sin of humanity and turn the world right side up again. But you see, here's, here's the problem. Um, over time, a religious class in Israel developed. These are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus speaks of in verse 20. And this religious class twisted and perverted the law. Really what they did is that they reduced it down to a trivial and absurd set of complicated rituals that only they could follow. And yet at the same time, completely missing the point of the law. But they used it to work to their advantage. They got rich off it, many of them. Many of these religious elite establishment people, they got rich off of it. They got powerful off of it. But they weren't loving God and loving people. In fact, the way that they had perverted the law made them hateful, prideful, judgmental, religious snobs. They used it to authorize themselves as the glittering examples of people that God loved. And they used it to bludgeon the ordinary people and to make them feel hopeless, worthless, shut out from God. So, with all of that in mind, who could blame these common, uneducated people to whom Jesus was speaking? Who could blame them for thinking that, well, what he's saying is that he's going to abolish this very law? Because everything that Jesus said about who could live in the kingdom of God, who could be his disciple, who could live in the right side of everything he has said is precisely the opposite of the ideas that they had always been taught. So they think, well, he's, he's, he's saying that he's going to abolish the law. But Jesus wanted these people to understand that the problem really wasn't the law. The problem was the way it had been perverted. And so in these verses, he tells them that he is going to fulfill it in every possible way. Because for Jesus to be an acceptable sacrifice for the sin of humanity, he had to fulfill God's law perfectly because this is what righteousness looks like. It was never the source of righteousness. 
But Jesus wanted these people to understand that it was always and forever the course of righteousness. It is what a life right side up looks like. And so he says, I am going to fulfill it in every possible way. And then in verse 20, he gives, oh, he is such a great communicator. He gives us a little teaser about what is to come in the rest of the sermon. And he says in verse 20 that a life lived, essentially what he's saying is that a life lived right side up looks nothing like the religious establishment. It doesn't look anything like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The law is never the source of righteousness, but it is always and forever the course of righteousness. It is what life in the right side up looks like. I just want to close, I want to close with this. I want you to understand that this whole sermon that Jesus is going to preach and everything that he has said so far, it opens with, or it is a, it's, a, it's a message of kingdom subversiveness. Jesus is turning the upside down world right side up with this sermon. And he actually opens this sermon with a message of kingdom subversiveness. And then he finishes his introduction to the sermon by saying that he will fulfill the law, which was a hint at his future death. And his death, by the way, would be the ultimate statement of kingdom subversiveness. Because before Jesus came, the cross that he would die on was a gallows. You understand that? The cross was a gas chamber. It was a firing squad. It was a guillotine. It it didn't mean at all strength or conquest. All the cross meant was not that you'd won, but that you'd lost. The cross wasn't a symbol of strength. It was a symbol of weakness. It wasn't a symbol of conquering. It was a symbol of having been conquered by the Roman Empire. But in an astounding act of kingdom subversiveness, 2,000 years later, the mighty Roman Empire lies in ruins while the revolution of Jesus Christ is still alive. And of all things... Jesus turned a symbol of weakness and death into the most recognizable and familiar symbol of love in the history of the world. And in so doing, he opened the portal, if we could say it that way. He opened the portal to the kingdom of God, to life in the right side up, to anyone and everyone who would enter it, to anyone and everyone who would be his disciple. But to do so, everyone, anyone and everyone, would have to come through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, there are two responses to this, to this part of the Sermon on the Mount, I think. The first is to rejoice. Like, rejoice that the kingdom of God is open to anyone and everyone, and that, that includes someone like me, and that includes someone like you. If you're here today and you've thought to yourself, maybe somebody's even told you before, maybe you attended a church sometime in your past that kind of made you feel like you were less than, like you weren't wanted, that God would never want to have anything to do with you because you're such a mess, your life is such a mess, you've made so many terrible mistakes in the past. You think to yourself, God would never want me. Rejoice because Jesus is saying, you, 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 come be my disciple. I want you. And and over time, I'm going to change you. This isn't about you changing your life up. Just come through the cross, 
and I'll change you over time. Rejoice in that. On the other hand, the other response is repent for some of you. Like if you have looked at this list of people that Jesus describes, and if you've thought to yourself, well, this is what makes me worthy of the kingdom of God, and you've worked to become one of these kind of people, and you're proud of yourself for that, would you repent this morning? Because you need to understand that your righteousness means nothing. Your best, most righteous acts in the world are filthy rags before God. It is only the cross of Christ that you can boast in. That is the only thing that makes any of us worthy of the kingdom of God, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Rejoice or repent. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Like everything else in the Scriptures, Lord, this is a message of grace. And yet we confess that in our attempt to justify ourselves, we turn even a message of grace into a message of self-justification. We turn a message of grace into petty legalism. And Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we repent over that. Lord, we also rejoice over this, that you would allow someone like me, someone like everyone here, into the kingdom, anyone and everyone can learn to live right side up in an upside down world. It's available to everyone and we rejoice over that. Lord, if there are people here today who have, maybe they've been told that God would never want someone like them, that they would need to clean up their life before God would ever care about them. Lord, would you speak to them powerfully through this passage in a way that I cannot? And would you convince them in the deepest place of their souls that you want them now just as they are? Would you bring them to the cross where you paid for their sins and my sins and everyone else's sins? And Lord, would you, would you teach them how to live right side up in an upside down world? We thank you so much for the truth, the relevance, the uniqueness of your message. And it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we worship and pray. Amen. 